Are you glad you're in church today? Well, so am I. It's great to see the baptisms. It's, we've been, that's been happening every service on all three of our campuses today. It's just been amazing, and we are so happy to celebrate with people who are following their Lord, our Lord, in believer's baptism. So, so great, great, great stuff. Uh, we are starting a brand new series this Sunday called The Greatest Week in History, and that will lead us right up through Easter. And what I've been doing recently, and I want to do again today, is kind of set the context of where we're at. We've been talking about some things that happened in the Old Testament, and now we're crossing into the New Testament. And, and the short version of that is Moses is called by God to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Uh, they've been enslaved for 400 years. He does that. 40 years later, before going into the promised land, Moses dies Joshua leads them into the promised land. Uh, they go into Canaan. When Joshua dies, people start drifting from God, and it, it turns into a period known as the Judges, because as people would drift by God, then they would be conquered by other people, then they would cry out for deliverance to God, and then God would raise up a leader called a judge, and then they would deliver the, the people, but then it would just happen again and again, kept happening. And that's the time setting of a series that we did two series ago called Ruth that was in that time period. After the time of the judges, after Ruth, the people then started crying out, we want a king. We want a king to fight our battles, not just a judge. We want a king to rule over us who will go out and lead us to fight our battles. And so God gives them kings. And it started with Saul, and he didn't turn out so great. Then David, their greatest king. And then Solomon, then the kingdom broke apart, and things kind of went south, and people again drifted away from God and kept being conquered by their enemies. That's how God judged them for following false gods until finally a kingdom called Babylon uh, wiped out the last remnants of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. The last two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, then fell. Jerusalem fell. Everything was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The city was destroyed. People were taken into captivity. The prophets said that would only last 70 years. And so 70 years later, uh, they in fact were released from no longer in Babylon, but now in Persia, because Persia took over for battle, Babylon, conquered Babylon. And then people started coming back, coming back into Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then that brings us to what we were talking about last week, Nehemiah. This is the time that Nehemiah lives. He's actually in service to the king of Persia. His name is Artaxerxes. And then Nehemiah gets permission. He gets Artaxerxes to issue a decree for them to go back and rebuild the city. And that's what happens. He goes back. The temple's been built. Now he goes and builds the city and the walls. And, and if one thing that the captivity accomplished, that 70-year period where they were gone was that then the people no longer rebelled and started following false gods. They sometimes drifted from the one true God, but they never followed false gods after that time. And in a general sense, they kept waiting for their Messiah, the king that would come, the one from the line of David who would be even greater than David. They were waiting for that king called the Messiah. So that's, that's where we're at. And now 
the greatest week in history is the last week before Christ's crucifixion. The greatest week in history is all about the greatest person in history. But the first thing I want to tell you is about the timing of the greatest week in history. And so this is a little bit of a side note, and some of you will probably, your eyes will glaze over. I just want you to hang with me. Or if you know you're not going to be able to hang, just grab your cell phone and start doing something. Because what, what I want to do here is I want to set, here's, here's the deal. One of those prophets during the captivity was named Daniel during that 70 years. And Daniel, God told Daniel a bunch of things about the future. For example, God told Daniel that Israel would be dominated by four world powers. And that's before these world powers existed, except for Babylon. He said, there's going to be Babylon, and then Persia is going to take over from Babylon, and then Greece is going to take over from for Persia, you, you remember the, the, the 300 and all that? So then Greece takes over, and then Rome. And that was before these places. Greece, for example, is mentioned in Daniel before Greece was a Greece. And so this all happened. He predicted all that. But then besides that, Daniel, God also told Daniel in one of his visions the exact timing of when the Messiah that they're waiting for would show up. And he did that in a vision called 70 weeks. How many have heard of Daniel's 70 weeks? Okay, so I just want to walk you through that real fast, and then we'll get back to the point. Are you with me? All right, so you're with me. Great. So Daniel's 70 weeks. What we know from Hebrew, the word weeks just means seven, a, a period of seven or a set of sevens. And Daniel's 70 weeks are actually seven, 70 seven-year periods. 70 seven-year periods, that equals 490 years. Does that make sense? So in 490 years, there would be Messiah. But actually, it's not just 490. Seven years before that, in 483 years, the Messiah would be cut off. And I want to kind of break that down for you, but here's what Daniel says in Daniel Chapter 9, verse 24, this is what's said to Daniel, I should say. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Talk about Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So that's the 70 weeks. But then the next verse, he tells us when they start and how they sort of break down. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Okay, so I don't know if he caught that, but he's saying, hey, there's 70 weeks. But then he's actually saying, after 69 of those weeks, seven first, you know, and then he's saying, then 62, 
then the Messiah is going to happen. So I have a, a graph for you, so be able to see this real quick. So basically, here's what he's saying. He breaks this down uh, into these periods. Now, we know from history that King Artaxerxes made this decree for Nehemiah to go back in 445 B.C., so remember, it goes down to the coming of Christ, then the years go up, right? So 440 years before Christ, he makes this command. Now, but the, here's the sections. The first seven weeks, or, or 49 years, he says, that's from the start of the decree to build the, the walls of Jerusalem and the city to when they finish building the walls and the city is rebuilt. So that's the first 49 years. Then the next 434 years after the walls are rebuilt, then the Messiah will be cut off. That's the second period. And then there's a third period we're not really talking about, tacked on to the end. There's actually a disconnect between the 60th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. And that last one, that last one week is actually seven years that we know as the seven years of tribulation and after the seven years of tribulation end, then Jesus comes back for his second coming. But he comes for his first coming after the 69 weeks or after 483 years. Does that make sense? Now, if we take the time when Nehemiah was there, and Artaxerxes issues the decree. History tells us that happened in 445 B.C., and then we count down 483 years using a Jewish calendar of 360 days. you got to do that because that's how they reckon the time. That would bring you to 30 A.D. 30, 30 A.D. 30 A.D. is when Jesus enters into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. That's when Jesus shows up at the greatest week in history. So there is a countdown of 483 years that people could follow with their own Jewish calendar because they had the writings of Daniel and the entire Old Testament, and they could count the years to know that this year something big was going to happen. The Messiah would actually show up. Does that make sense? Okay, now, okay, okay we, we lost some people. So if you're a little bit confused, that's okay. Just forget I said any of that because we're going on. Now you can put your cell phone down and tune back in, come back with me. That's all done. I'm just trying to tell you that amazingly, Daniel predicted 500 years before Jesus came, Daniel predicted the exact year that Jesus would come as Messiah and it times out to the year that he enters Jerusalem, the, the week that he died. By the way, that would be like us predicting something in 2521. How well do you think we would do? These things, these 20 things are going to happen in 2521. We couldn't even get 20 right while we were living in 2020, right? <laughs> I mean, Daniel, he's got it going on here. He's, he's nailing it. All right. Now, so here's the simple point here. That's the timing of the Messiah. All the Jewish people could have known that if, if they were watching, and no doubt some of them were. Now, and, and, I, and I say all that as you come back to me to just say the people had an expectation of the Messiah. The people are waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Christ. Now, I say the Christ because the Greek word Christ is just a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So it's not Jesus Christ, like Christ is Jesus' last name. 
It's Jesus the Messiah, or in Greek, Jesus the Christ. That's his title. So Jesus Christ comes riding in as the Messiah, and they're waiting. The Jewish people are waiting because they know about all these predictions in the Old Testament, all the stuff that the prophets have told them hundreds of years prior. And so their expectation is high. They're, they're waiting. And then they have all these prophecies that are about Jesus, about the Messiah that's coming. And then a lot of them are emphasizing that he's going to be a mighty king that will help them overthrow the people who are dominating them. And, so, and those prophecies sounded like this. For example, Psalm 110.1. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, that sounds good. This, the Messiah, the enemies will be a footstool for the Messiah's feet. Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So here's what's happening. The people, 500 years later after Nehemiah, they're still wanting a king that will go out and fight their battles. And this entire time, they've been dominated by foreign powers. First it was Babylon, but without a break. Then it was Persia, and without a break. Then it was Greece through Alexander the Great. And then without a break, now it's Rome. And when Jesus hits Jerusalem, Rome is still controlling them. So when they hear these prophecies of a great king who's going to make the enemies his footstool, they love that. But here's the problem. There were some other prophecies about the Messiah that sounded different, seemingly contradictory. Prophecies like this, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. All that sounds good. Behold, your king is coming to you. Sounds great. He is just and endowed with salvation. Okay, that's good too. But then it says this, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, and all of a sudden you're going, what, what? Conquering king? Where's the white stallion? Where, where's the chariot? You know, with four horses in front. On a, on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, it, that doesn't make any sense. A guy rides in as king and his feet are dragging because he's on a little donkey? You know, what's that all about? And then prophecies like this, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, talking about the Messiah. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of a sudden, this doesn't sound like a king who's running the place. This sounds terrible. Something bad's happening. By the way, this was written before there was ever anything invented called a crucifixion. And, and so they're going, this doesn't make sense. So, so what they did is they tended to gravitate toward all the prophecies about a coming king, and they tended to ignore all the prophecies about a humble servant. Does that make sense? 
That's what they did. And actually, that's kind of the same thing we do. I mean, it's understandable that they did that. They had been under the domination of a foreign power for centuries. And so they were ripe. I mean, they were ready. And now it's Rome, just like Daniel predicted that it would be. And what's happening here is the Jewish people can accept part of who Jesus is, but they, but they won't accept all of who Jesus is. And that, that is a problem that we all have. We, there are people in our culture today that have that exact same problem. You see, what's happening here is they welcomed their own idea of Jesus. And we see that in, in what we call the triumphal entry. I want to read it for you in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 6. The disciples went and just as Jesus had instructed, they went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, of all places. You know, this, this is what they're saying. Hey, this is, this is Jesus that's come. But here's the problem. And this is the triumphal entry that we always celebrate at Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter that's coming up in a few weeks. But we're talking about that now. And so the crowds are excited and they cheer the Jesus they want Jesus to be is the issue here. But they're actually celebrating a limited, watered-down, diluted version of Jesus that they have in their own minds. They shout, Son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and, and when they're doing that, they're correct and they're incorrect. They're correct as they apply to David and they shout out, hey, Hosanna, which means save now, interesting enough, you know, save us, son of David. They recognize him as the coming king who comes in the name of the Lord Almighty, they're talking about. You know, they've got that part right. He is the coming king. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. But... They're incorrect in what they think the Messiah should do because they want him to immediately lead a revolt and overthrow Rome because they see Rome as their biggest problem. And then the ironic thing is, as they're shouting this to Jesus, Jesus is riding on a colt that's following a donkey that's piled high with coats to keep his feet from dragging in the dust. And they're saying, son of David. Throughout his ministry, 
Jesus claimed to be the son of man. He claimed to be the son of David. He claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be the Messiah. And people accepted it. But they choked when he claimed to be the son of God. They choked when he claimed to be God. And so they accept Jesus here as the Jesus that they want him to be. But not, they weren't really accepting Jesus for who he really is. And that's what happens with people all the time today. People today are good with Jesus. They like Jesus. But they like a Jesus who is in the form of the idea of who they think Jesus should be. For example, everybody likes Jesus when he says that we should love everybody. Everybody likes Jesus when Jesus says, do not judge. We love that. You know, do not judge. But everybody hates Jesus who says, you deserve hell and eternity for the wrong things you've done. They hated that. Everybody hates a Jesus who says, there's only one, no one comes to the Father but through me. They see that as way too exclusive. How can you say there's only one way? But the problem is, the real Jesus said both sets of things, right? And that's the problem. Because both things are true. And the question is, in the first century, and the question is today, how will you respond to Jesus? You see, today, most people will not acknowledge Jesus' authority in their lives. They don't like the idea of having an authority over them. They don't like the idea of somebody telling them that something they're doing is wrong. And so they question his authority. And the exact same thing happened in the first century. After Jesus rode into Jerusalem, we know by comparing all the gospel accounts that he actually went into the city. He sort of viewed over the Temple Mount, but then he left the city because it was late, and he went to Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. But then first thing in the morning, he came back to the city, and then he went into the temple. And remember the temple, if you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, that temple mount, that big flat spot where the Dome of the Rock is sitting, the Muslim uh, shrine there, that is the same dimensions as the old temple mount in, in the first century days anyway. And instead of that mosque there, that, that shrine, was the temple. And so Jesus goes in and he goes on to the temple mount and that big area around the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. So it was part of the Temple Mount, but it was actually reserved for a specific use. The Court of the Gentiles was a place that God reserved for Jewish people to teach non-Jewish people, most of us called Gentiles, about the Jewish God, about God. So the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place where people like you and me could come and have Jewish people explain to us about God, because they had the Old Testament, they had all the stuff. But when Jesus got there that day, that's not what he found. 
Instead, that outer court of the Gentiles was just packed with a bunch of people buying and selling. They were mainly doing two things, exchanging money and also selling animals for the sacrifice. They exchanged money because the money of the realm was Roman coins, but the Jewish people at the temple said, you can't give an offering with Roman coins. It's got to be Israeli coins. And so they weren't in use. They were a little harder to come by. So this was an exchange rate thing that was going on. Turn in your Roman money, get some Israeli money, and the exchange rate was a little steep. But not only that, there's all these people selling sheep and lambs for the sacrifice. And and Jesus knew that they needed the sacrifice, but that used to happen in the countryside around Jerusalem as people approached the city. But in, in the days of Jesus, they had moved all that right on to the temple grounds. And it was just a big market, like a, a big mess. And they weren't using the temple grounds the way they were supposed to. And Jesus understand, hey, they need to buy animals. Remember, the Jewish people, they would bring a sacrifice in the form of, say, a lamb. And here's why. Because the people knew that God was righteous and holy. And and people also knew that they weren't. We aren't. And we can look at the Old Testament and know We all sin against God. We do things that God says not to do. All of us do. And that makes us broken. And when we're broken and when we're in our sin, we cannot connect with a perfectly righteous God. And so God made a way, sort of an illustration, for us to be able to connect with him temporarily, even in spite of our sin. So that's what's happening in the first century and had been happening for centuries before that, is that the people were buying, and and, and today people go, how barbaric, how could that be? People were purchasing or bringing a little perfect lamb, innocent perfect lamb, and then they were killing it as a way of, it was like a object lesson for the people to say, okay, I'm guilty of sin, And I want to approach a holy and righteous God. What do I do to make myself covered so I could approach God? How can I deal with my sin so I can approach God and be with God? How could I do that? And so God gave them this sacrificial system where they took the most innocent animal you could think of, a little lamb, and they killed it. Because remember, doing good things doesn't take away any sin. You'd say, well, why doesn't God just tell them to do a bunch of good things? Because good things are what we're supposed to do. That's the normal line, doing good things. So no amount of good things that we do can erase even one of our sins. So God said, I'm going to have you get a lamb, a perfect, innocent lamb that didn't do anything, and you're going to kill it, and that's a reminder that you don't deserve to be in the presence of God because of your sin. You're acknowledging your sin and you're understanding that you need some sort of covering to make up for that in order to come into God's holy, righteous presence. So people are doing this and it was the right thing to do at the time to say, hey, I'm broken, I messed up. And then that sin covering, that lamb, would last you until next year. 
and then you would have to do it again. So that's happening. So now Jesus sees all this is going on. It's the right thing to do, but it's in the wrong place. And so the, the real Jesus walks into the temple. He sees all this, and he starts flipping over tables. You know, money's flying everywhere. Lambs and sheep are running all over the place. He's, he's caused like a mild riot on the temple mount. And the people are stunned. I mean, who does this? I mean, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. You got the Roman authorities that don't want you to do this. You got the temple police. They actually had temple police that don't want you to. Who does this? And the crowds are stunned and they know they're looking at either somebody who's confused and they don't know what they're doing or maybe the bravest person they've ever seen, which was actually true. And so Jesus goes in and causes this huge disruption. And then... The religious leaders come to Jesus later and they question his authority. They're saying, who do you think you are? We pick that up in Matthew 21, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They're saying, who do you think you are to be doing this stuff? Now, now here's the problem. There's a problem with the question. Because now they're in public. Jesus is teaching people in public. He's already done the temple, and that, so it's a different scene now. He's teaching people. A bunch of people are around. He's caused a huge stir in the city. Now we're during the week, and everybody wants to see what he says. And so these religious leaders come and they question him about authority based on what he did in the temple earlier. Now, when, when they're asking by whose authority, Jesus has a, he has a couple different ways to answer. He can say by some person's authority. But if he says anything about human authority, what they're going to say as leaders at the temple, they're going to say, well, that doesn't count. We're representing God's authority. All right, so he can't win that way. But if then Jesus answered and said to them, I'm doing this by God's authority, then they would have accused him of blasphemy and he would die then rather than on Friday a few days later and Jesus still has a few things to do. And so it's one of those double-bind questions, one of those hard questions. Ever been asked a question? Sometimes people do this unintentionally. They do it intentionally where no matter how you answer, you're in trouble. It's like that. You know, it's kind of like how we use, in America, there used to be like a media that would ask the president of the United States really tough questions. I mean, we don't do that anymore. But back in the day, the media would ask them really tough questions. And it's kind of like no matter how they answered, you know, they're kind of in trouble. That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what they're doing to Jesus. It's a no-win question. So here's what Jesus does, because he's brilliant. Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer one question from me. And here's, here's what he says. Because by the way, before you even get to this, they should already know the answer to this question. It's obvious, but anyway. So here's Jesus' response. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. The baptism of John, talking about John the Baptist, the baptism of John was from what source? 
from heaven or from men? He's kind of asking them the same kind of question. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he'll say to us, why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the crowd that's around. We fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And so these people, when Jesus asked them the question, they feel like, oh, Jesus just gave me a double-bind question. He just gave me a no-win question right back, you know, right back in my face, and I can't answer that. But Jesus' question was way more, and so they didn't. But his question was way more profound than that. He's actually giving them the answer to the question that they just asked him. Why? Well, because everybody considered that John the Baptist was a prophet. Nobody's really even doubting that. Now, he's been beheaded by Herod some months before all this. But nobody's doubting. I mean, he died for being a prophet. So nobody's doubting that. And Jesus says, okay, well, John, he do his stuff because God wanted him to or because he wanted to? And they can't answer because if they say, well, God, then it will, well, John said he wasn't worthy to tie my shoelace. Why don't you believe him? So they don't want to say that. If they say, no, he wasn't a prophet, they know the people will stone him because everybody knows he is. You see, if they would have just thought about the question. They would have had their answer. Jesus isn't trying to stump them here. He's trying to give them, lead them to the answer that everybody there knows is obvious. Of course he's the Messiah. Everybody's shouting that he's the Messiah. John said that he was a Messiah, and everybody considers him a prophet, and prophets can't get anything wrong. And so he's leading them right to the answer. He's just feeding it to them. And the question is simply this, how will you respond to Jesus today? See, people respond to Jesus different ways. They did it in the first century. They did it in the last week, the greatest week in history. And they're still doing it now. Some of you, well, all of you, we all have to answer this question one way or the other. Will we accept Jesus' authority? Will we accept him for who he says he is? Not who we want him to be. Not how we think he ought to be. Not that he... No, we... People in our culture, we constantly question God. Well, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I'm okay with Jesus. You know, love everybody and, you know, don't judge. And so get off me, you know, and all that. And, well, what, and then they, well, what about, you know, if it's only Jesus, what about all these other religions? Or, or hey, if, if God's so powerful, what's up with all the evil and the bad things that are happening? Of course, there are answers to every one of those questions. If you just read the Bible, they're all there, but they just throw out the questions. But see, just like the leaders back then, they're not throwing out the question to get a real answer. And there are real answers. Sometimes they're just throwing out the question because they don't want an authority in their life. They don't want someone telling them, what's right and wrong. They don't want somebody judging them, and Jesus is the judge. And so they just throw questions. Now, other people, they throw out their questions, and they're sincere. 
and they get answers. I've talked to hundreds of people that get answers for their question, and, and it changes their life as they figure out who Jesus really is, and then they come to accept Him. Because here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. We have all sinned. We've, we've all messed up any relationship we have with God because God is perfectly holy and righteous and just. And, and we need something to cover our sins, something that, that, that fixes that so that we can have a relationship as sinners, people who have done wrong, with a holy and righteous God. But Jesus came to say, he went into Jerusalem as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus never sinned his whole life. They said perfect lamb. Jesus, Scripture's telling us, was the perfect lamb. And he voluntarily allowed himself to be killed to cover all of our sins, to pay for Kevin's sin, my personal sins, and to pay for your personal sins. But the only way that counts is that you have to come to him on his terms. You have to admit that you are messed up, that you do have issues, that you are a sinner. You've got to admit that. And then you have to understand what Christ has done with you done for you 2,000 years ago and put your trust in Jesus and what he did by dying on the cross as your substitute to pay for your sin. And infinite God, because he's infinite, can pay for all of our sins and he could do it for an eternity. And that's what Jesus is offering you. Forgiveness for you personally that will last forever but you have to put your trust in Christ. In just a moment, our band's going to come back out or we're, we're going to close in, in part of the song that we were in a while ago. But as we do that, I just, uh, you know, I just feel that there might be people here that have never done it and you're ready to do it and I want you to kind of close that deal. Put your faith in Christ alone. Not church, not baptism. That doesn't save you. Just the blood of Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Let me... If you're ready to do that, I, I want to just lead you in a prayer that will express that to God. Make this your prayer. You could do it silently. God knows your every thought. Something like this. Father God in heaven, I admit that I have rebelled and sinned against you. God, I also understand that for some reason you love me anyway. And so you made a way for my sins to be covered, to be dealt with. Lord, thank you for allowing your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. And Lord, I, I'm putting my trust in Jesus alone, my belief, my faith in Jesus and only Jesus for my salvation. And God, I ask you to come into my heart and help me to follow you as best I can. In Christ's name, amen. While our heads are still bowed just for a moment, if you prayed that prayer and as far as you know, for the first time in your life, you understood it that way, prayed that I'd like you to tell somebody, and, and the easiest way is for you to just let me know, and I'd like you to do that just by raising your hand where I can see you and then just put it down. That's all I'm asking you to do is just look up here, see me, raise your hand, kind of wave at me and say, yeah, I did that, and then put it right back there. Thank you. 